All right. Well, let me just explain briefly for those of you who like to know this kind of thing what to expect in the weeks to come. We finished our series in Philippians last week. My plan this fall is to do a series in the book of Jonah. I am excited about preaching through Jonah, but I'm still learning about Jonah myself, and I'm not quite ready uh, to begin preaching on it. I'm doing some research and some study, reading some commentaries, trying to understand the book, and I'm not ready to preach about it yet. So I'm going to take a few weeks and do my prep, and in the meantime, what I thought I would do is do just a short little series, two, three weeks uh, in, in the book of Romans, but just Romans chapter 6. So Romans is and at least in my family, I, I often refer to Romans as the Mount Everest of the Bible. I just think it, sta- it kind of like encompasses all the theology throughout the Bible and compresses it into, it's all there. It's all there in Romans. It's an amazing book. And so I think of it as this peak. Uh, the, whole, the whole Bible is God's word. The whole Bible is infallible and inspired and useful for teaching, training, correction, rebuke. Uh, but to me, Roman, there's something special about the way that Romans just encompasses all that the Bible teaches. So, but what, what I'm going to do is just pull out the book of, or the chapter of Romans 6, which is obviously part of a bigger picture, and yet in some ways it can stand alone on its own as well. At least I'm going to see if it does, see if I can preach just through chapter 6 and see if it makes sense. So we'll take two or three weeks to do that. All right. I invite you to grab your Bible or grab a pew Bible or, or look on on the screen and I'm going to read it, Romans chapter 6. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read Romans 6 and I think it's verses 1 to 14. Yep, 6, 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him In a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll read that line again. It's the title for this little series. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This 
is the word of the Lord. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Holy Father, we come now before your holy word once again. We gather as a church family and we are seated at your table prepared to receive this meal. I pray that you would help us to understand these words that were spoken and written down so long ago, inspired by your spirit, still true and unchanging, still relevant to us, to the church, to our lives, still clear instructions about how we are to live and how we are to think about ourselves and what it means for us to be united to Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. So help us to make sense of these things, help us to believe these things, and help us by your Spirit to live them out, to embody these things. In your name, amen. All right, well, Paul opens with a question. Did you notice that? First one starts with a question. It's a rhetorical question. Paul often does that. The question is basically this. If grace is free, then what is the motivation for godliness? If grace is free, if all of our sins are forgiven by grace, then who cares what we do? Why bother with the law? Why bother pursuing righteousness? Why does it matter at all? If grace is free, let's just do whatever we want. That's the question that Paul is raising at the beginning of Romans 6. Now, the premise of that question is this. Sin is so excellent. Sin is so good that the only way anyone would ever consider actually ceasing from sin, giving up sin, is you've got you've to leverage something over their head to get them not to sin. So if you hold eternity over their head and you threaten them with horrible things that will happen to you if you keep on sinning, then maybe you can get people not to sin. Right? It's sort of like if you think about like the worst job in the world. I don't know what, what comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, worst job uh, in the world. There was this show on TV. I can't remember what it was called. The host was named Mike Rowe, and he would go around. I think it's called Dirty Jobs or something like that. He would go around looking at these awful jobs, and, and you could see what it's like to, to have one of these jobs. I remember one episode, he was uh, interviewing and following along with someone whose job was to clean the sewers. He would, this guy would go down, and he would test the sewers, and then he would scrub them and clean them, and uh, that just seemed like the awful Worst job that I could imagine anyways. It just seemed terrible. And so the idea that if that's the job that needs to be done, if you just try to fill that position by looking for volunteers, hey, you know, this, we're all in this together. This affects all of us. We need clean sewers. So could, so could somebody just volunteer and do this? Nobody would volunteer. Nobody would want to do that. So the way that you get someone to do that dirty job is by paying them a lot of money. If you pay enough money, you'll get people to apply to fill that job, right? They will think it's worth it to do that if you pay them enough money in order to do it. Now, what Paul is saying in this rhetorical question is not sinning. It's kind of like that, right? No one would possibly volunteer to live a life of righteousness. No one would possibly volunteer to give up their sin. But if the wages are high enough... If God sweetens the pot enough, then you might find someone who is interested in living a life of righteousness, right? So what Paul is saying in this question is that, look, if grace is free, you just lost your motivation for godliness, 
right? If you're just giving it away, how are you going to get out anyone to live a righteous life? Who's going to bother with that if all of our sins are already forgiven? That's a good question. And Paul has a good answer. Paul says his response to that question is, you know, the fact that you're asking the question, presumably people were asking that question, and that's why he raises it in Romans 6. He says the fact that you're asking that question really reveals that you're so far off base in your thinking that you have missed the whole point of what happens when someone receives God's free gift of grace. The reason that the recipients of the free gift of grace do not continue to live blatantly sinful and godly lives is because that when they received that free gift, they died with Christ. Did you hear that word over and over again? Died, death, mortality? He's saying these two things go together. In other words, if you haven't died with Christ... You, then you haven't received the free gift of grace. And if you have received the free gift of grace, then guess what? You've died with Christ. Your old self is dead. In fact, in the course of these 14 verses, Paul references death 16 times, more than once per verse, talking about death. But the passage is really all about life. The tone of the passage is all about life our new life in Christ. But in order to experience new life in Christ, our old self needs to die. A death needs to happen in order for us to be alive in Christ. That's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, right? Which is so full of paradoxes, right? The last will be first. You have to die in order to live. So here's the main flaw of the opening question. The question, right, who's going to bother living righteously if all of our sins are forgiven anyway? The question assumes a fundamental continuity between the pre-faith and the post-faith person. That there's really not that much difference between someone prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ and after coming to faith. That's the premise of that question. It assumes that there's fundamental continuity and there isn't. It's a deeply flawed premise. Because pre-faith, according to the Bible, sin is in charge. We are born in rebellion against God. We are inclined towards rebellion against God. We are inclined to worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. That's how the Bible describes humanity apart from grace. So pre-grace, sin is in charge in our lives. We can't not sin. But after experiencing the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, after having faith in Jesus Christ, everything changes because according to this passage, we're dead. When that happens, we die and then we're raised again with Christ. New life in Christ. And according to this chapter, baptism is a picture of that. It's a picture of how we've been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Now in the CRC and in Reformed churches, we baptize our children. Rightly so. Rightly so. We baptize our children not because we think that they have saving faith in Jesus Christ when they're baptized. We baptize them because we believe that as children of believers... God extends his covenant promises to them as well. 
And so we consider them members of the household of God. And therefore, we think it's right and good that they receive the sign of the covenant. And we pray that they will grow up and we pray that by God's grace, they will embrace the Christian faith for themselves when they grow up. We pray that that will happen early in their lives. And we pray that their lives, their entire lives, will be marked by consistent faithfulness to God. I've often said when I've done baptisms here, in baptism, God is proclaiming to our children, I love you, right? He's taking the initiative before they know they need anything, before they know to ask for it, before they're able to return that love. God just says, I'm taking the initiative. I love you. And my promises of grace are for you. And then we pray that one day, they, our kids will grow up and they will return that and they will turn back to God and in faith say, I love you too. Right? That's the prayer. We pray that one, children, our children, one day our children will respond by faith and say to God, I love you. I love you too. I love being part of your family. I trust you. I find joy and obedience to you. That's faith. That's faith. And we pray that our kids will walk in it. Baptism is a picture of that. Whether you're baptized as an infant or whether you're baptized as an adult, baptism is a picture of that. That, we've, that we're united with Christ in his death and we're raised again to do newness of life in Christ. I have, a, I have a friend, he's not a close friend, more of an acquaintance, a pastor named Robin uh, Beauvoir. And he's a pastor out east uh, in a, at a church just outside of Washington, D.C. And one day, his church, they were doing a baptism, and it was an outside thing. They, they actually went to the lake, and they were at the shore of the lake on the beach, and the pastor and the person being baptized were out in the water. And there was a big crowd of people from the church looking on, kind of at the shoreline, facing out, looking in the water. And then a random person just walked by and saw... And my, my friend, Pastor Robin, was kind of at the back of the pack. He wasn't in the water. And this person walked by and, and said, what happened? Did someone die? <laughs> and uh, my friend Robin turned to him and said, yeah. <laughs> and the guy was like, what? And then Robin took the opportunity to explain to him, uh, yeah, here's what happened. Somebody died to their old self and to their old way of life. They died to trusting in themselves. And they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they have now been resurrected to new life in Christ, and we're recognizing that by baptizing them in the water. Uh, Robin's point was that when someone comes to faith in Christ, a death occurs. Paul's point in Romans chapter 6 is that when someone comes to faith in Christ, a death occurs. We die to our old self, we die to our old way of life, and we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That's Paul's point here. Uh, let, me, let me try to demonstrate or illustrate the point by looking at the, at the meaning of a word that only appears twice. In the whole Bible, this word only pops up uh, 
twice. The word in Greek is polygenesia, and it only happens in Matthew and in Titus. So let me tell you the context. In Matthew, it's Matthew 19, and it's the story of the rich young ruler. And you remember the story. The guy comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't like the answer he gets. Uh, and the, the real bottom line reason is because he loves his money more than he loves God, right? So he doesn't like the answer he got. And he goes away sad. And Jesus takes the opportunity to talk to his disciples and say, well, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And everyone is shocked because everyone at that time thought that, well, the rich people, God must really love them, otherwise why would they be rich? And so they're shocked and they say to Jesus, all right, then who can be saved? If rich people can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus says, well, with man, this is impossible. Nobody can. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. All things. To which Peter responds, well, see, we've left everything to follow you. Right? Basically, Peter's saying, look, we remember that rich guy that was just here? He, he didn't do it. <laughs> he wouldn't leave everything to follow you, but we did. We left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus says, I, truly I say to you, in the new world, and that's the word, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, they will receive a hundredfold and they will inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus is talking, he's looking forward here, and he's talking about what will happen in, in the new world. He says, in the new world, or, or that could be translated, in the renewal of all things, or in the regeneration of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. In other words, according to Jesus, this world that we're currently living in is the old world. Because he's looking forward to the new world. This is the old world. Now this world originally was perfectly good when God made it. But we have introduced sin and chaos and death into this world. So that now, even though it's still good and it's still beautiful, it's also broken. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be here now in this world. But one day... He's going to transform this world and make it new again. That's what he says in the new world. At the regeneration, at the renewal of all things. The word that theologians sometimes use for this is repristination. All that means is God is going to come take this broken world and he's going to redeem it and renew it. He's going to make it pristine again. He's going to repristinate this world that he has made and that has been broken. He's going to make it like it once was. He's going to renew it. And the phrase that Jesus uses to refer to that new world is that, is that word, polygonasia, the, the renewal of all things, the regeneration. Things are going to be made right. Okay, now listen to the one other place. That was referring to the world. Listen to the one other place in the whole Bible that that word gets used. It's in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. And Paul writes, But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word, regeneration, it's the same word, polygonasia, 
the renewal of all things, regeneration. This is an amazing truth. It's easy to miss. But Paul is saying that in the receiving of the free grace of the gift of God, the Holy Spirit washes us, regenerates us, fixes us, makes us new. Right? So here's what I'm saying. In the same way that one day in the future, God is going to fix the old world and make it new, recreate it, repristinate it, fix it, that same thing has already happened to us by the Holy Spirit. We have been now, right now, we have been made new. We don't, that's not something we're awaiting to happen. We have been made new. We have been regenerated. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, present tense, not future tense. We're, we're regenerated now. That's an important point. And those verb tenses are important. The reason that we don't continue to wallow in sin and celebrate sin and walk in sin, even though our sins are forgiven, is because we've been made new. We've been regenerated. We've been repristinated by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an illustration that C.S. Lewis always gave whenever he talked about this. And he says that most of us, before we came to faith or had faith in Christ, we thought of our, our lives as a cottage, like kind of an old cottage and kind of run down, kind of a fixer-upper. And a lot of us thought that when God entered into our life, when we came to faith, when we called on the name of Jesus for salvation, we thought that God would move in and that God would begin to fix up the place because our life was a bit of a fixer-upper. So he'd repair the broken windows and he'd put curtains where there weren't curtains and maybe fix the door that didn't, didn't shut right. Just kind of fix up our lives. And C.S. Lewis said, yeah, but that, actually that's not at all what God intends to do when he moves into our life. It's not, your, your life isn't a fixer-upper, it's a tear-down. It's a total restart. He comes in and levels the place and then rebuilds it from the ground up and he makes it beautiful. And we think when we call God, when we, when we come to faith in Christ and invite God into our life, you know, we have these things like, well, you could do this, you could do that, that could use a little work, that could use a little work. And God says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not here for a partial uh, fi fix up. I'm here to totally renovate. I'm here to do a tear down and I'll take that cottage away and I'm going to build a palace where I can live. A palace where God dwells. And that's what our lives are through faith in Christ. And when that's true, there are some implications to being a new creation in Christ. When, when we become a new creation in Christ by grace through faith, Sin no longer has dominion over us. We are set free from the power of sin. Paul uses the language of liberation. He, he, he's calling to mind the idea of being in prison, being in chains, and then being released. Right? You were in prison, but now you're not in prison anymore. Before and after. Slave, now free. Right? Let, me, let me give an example um, to, to illustrate the point here. Just, this is just to give us a little bit more accurate picture of what it means to be in prison, enslaved to the dominion of sin. Sin is a cruel master. So here's a picture of, of the dungeon of sin. I got this from a book that I read a little while ago 
uh, Henri Charrières, who wrote it. It's his autobiography. He's better known as Papillon, which his life has been turned into a movie a couple of times now. But um, what happened to him, he was accused and convicted of murder. Whether or not he did it, it depends who you ask. Uh, he says he didn't do it. But anyways, he was convicted in France and then sent away to a French penal colony, which is what they did back then to convicted murderers. He was there for a while. He escaped for a while. He got caught and brought back. And when he got brought back, he got put in the dungeon of the prison, like an actual dungeon. And here's what he writes in his, in his autobiography. I was led to some stairs that went underground. We went down about 25 steps and arrived in a dimly lit passage with cages opening off to the left and to the right. Picture it. I was pushed into one of them and they closed the door behind me and then I, then I got the full benefit of the stink that rose from the slimy floor. And then he goes on to describe, they're on an island and the tide comes in every day and when the tide comes in, those dungeon prison cells, they flood. He says, the first time it happened, the other prisoners called out to me and told me not to worry because it would only rise about waist high. So every day, their cell floods to about waist high. And they said, listen, when the rats swim over to you and try to scramble up onto your head so that they can keep dry, um, don't try to grab them because they'll just bite you. <laughs> what you need to do is grab your shoe and try to whack them on the head, then they'll stay away. And he said that the water in his cell then rose and he heard splashing and he realized that it was a rat about the size of a cat and it was trying to swim over and climb onto his head. So he whacked it and it swam away. But then centipedes and tiny crabs swam over to him and started biting him and he reports it was the most disgusting thing that he had ever experienced. And after a half an hour, the water slowly retreated and then the floor was left covered with slime and centipedes and crabs. His, his fellow prisoners told him that usually men last about three months down there. And if you're not released within three months, then basically you've been sent there to die. Now, I realize that's a graphic illustration. But I want for that to be a picture to us of what it means to be in the chains of sin. Right? I think sometimes we take our sin too lightly. To be enslaved to sin is hopeless, it's dark, it's disgusting. Right? We soften sin sometimes by saying, well, yeah, but everybody sins, so what's the big deal? Or it's just pride, so who cares? Or it's just lust, I'm just looking. It's just selfishness, we're all a little bit selfish, right? What's the big deal? We soften it, we play it down, we make it seem normal. The big deal, though, is that all sin is rebellion against the holy God. All sin is a big deal, and all sin enslaves and imprisons us, and sin is a cruel master. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6 is that that was us, and it's not us anymore. That was us in the dungeon of sin, under the dominion of sin, under the power of sin, and it's not us anymore. We've been set free and released from that. Someone has opened up the door and called into the prison cell and said, hey, you're free to go now. You don't have to be here anymore. You can just walk out. We're no longer enslaved to sin because we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And perhaps now we can see why the question posed at the beginning of the chapter is so ridiculous. Hey, if grace is free, then, then, then what's going to keep us from sinning all the time? 
The answer is, are you kidding? You've been liberated from slavery to sin. You don't have to go back there. Why would you ever voluntarily go back there? You've been set free from that. That's the first implication of being a new creation. We're freed from the dominion of sin. We have no taste for it anymore. We don't want to keep sinning. We're released from that. And the second implication is that we're free from the power of death. Death, sin no longer has a hold on us. Death also no longer has a hold on us. Listen, this life that we live on this earth that we're all living right now, this is either the closest that you'll ever get to heaven or this is the closest that you'll ever get to hell. Right? Death, death is either a gateway or it's a black hole, right? It's either the doorway through which we walk into the eternal presence of God Almighty or it's the hole into which we fall and enter into eternal separation from God Almighty. And if it's the black hole, then death has power over you, right? That, death is the ultimate enemy and it will win sooner or later. It doesn't matter how successful or how powerful you are. Sooner or later, death wins. But for those of us in Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. The black hole has become a gateway. This past Monday, uh, one of my dearest friends from back home passed away. Uh, He's been sick for a while, so we weren't surprised by this. You've heard me talk about him before. His name is Mickey Zabo, he called me just a couple, like two days before he died, he called me. He knew he was in his final days. And the thing that marked me by the phone call was he was just so happy. He was just bursting. I thought he had, like when I first talked to him on the phone, I thought he had like some great news to share with me. And in his opinion, he did. He said, I'm going home soon. I got the ticket. I'm about to head out. I will be in the presence of, Lord, of the Lord very soon, and I'm very excited. That's what he said to me, standing on the edge of death and knowing it was coming in the next few days. He, he said, I, I cannot wait. I'm going to be in the presence of my Savior by the end of the week. And he was genuinely thrilled at that. There's a, there's a man for whom death has lost its sting, right? Death had absolutely no power over this man whatsoever. That's because he was united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Think of Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians that he, he once was caught up to heaven and he had this vision of paradise and he says he heard things that cannot be told. He heard things and saw things that cannot be uttered. No wonder after having caught that vision of paradise, Paul said, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death has no power over that man. Death loses its power over those of us who are buried and raised again with Christ because we know that if we have died with him, we also will live with him. So here's the real motivation for godliness. Remember, the assumption of the question is that the only thing that will ultimately motivate me to stop sinning is if there's some sort of payment, there's, there's something in it for me, or there's some sort of threat or punishment. But Paul says, we're united with Christ. And the life that Christ lived, he lives to God. That's verse 10. Jesus lives for the glory of God, and we're united with Christ. So we live for the glory of God. That's our motivation. 
We're not, we're, not, we're not trying to earn our way to God. That's not our motivation. Our motivation is to live lives for the glory of God. It's because we're united with Christ that we're motivated to live that way. Motivation has everything to do with whether or not you're going to stick with something, stick it out. When I think of being motivated to train and run for a marathon, if you're, I've done that a few times. If you're going to run a marathon, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of training, a lot of work, a lot of effort. If you don't, at some level, love running, you're, you're, you're not going to make it. Your motivation is, isn't going to hold out. If you're doing it for some other reason, like because you're trying to impress someone else or, or because you're trying to lose weight or, or something like that, at some point, that motivation is not going to get you through. At some point, you're going to have to lean hard into your love of running if you're going to train and make it through a marathon. And it's the same way with our sanctification, with our growth in godliness, our pursuit of righteousness. Right? You're not going to make it if you are motivated by a desire to impress others. And you're not going to make it if you're motivated by a desire to earn God's favor. Right? I got to do this because I got to pay God back. I got to get him to like me. Right? That's not, that's not going to last. What is going to last is if we're doing it for the love of God. If we love God, if we love his ways, if we love to walk in obedience to his ways, if we trust him that he knows what's best for us, that's what's going to motivate us to pursue righteousness with every fiber of our being. All right, let me review and then cl- I'll close with a quote, and we'll pick it up next week. Uh, the, w- the question is, if grace is free, why not sin all the time? The answer is, the fact that you're asking that question means you've missed the point. The reason that we don't sin, even though grace is free, is because when we receive the gift of grace, we became a new creation. Dead to sin and alive to God. Sin, therefore, no longer has dominion over us. It's not in charge of us. It's not the boss of us. It's not our master. We've been set free from that. And death no longer has dominion over us. It's no longer the thing that we ultimately fear most because death has been defeated. The final question is this, and this will lead us into next week. If that's all true, then why is this so hard? If I'm a new creation, and if I'm dead to sin, and if sin no longer has dominion over me, then why do I keep sinning? Why aren't, why aren't we all just living perfectly righteous and sanctified lives? It's a good question. Uh, Paul will address it in, 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 in the next part of Romans 6 that we'll look at next week. In the meantime, here's a quote from J.C. Ryle that's always been meaningful to me. He writes this, So deeply planted are the roots of human corruption that even after we're born again, renewed, washed, justified, sanctified, made living members of Christ, still these roots of sin remain alive in the bottom of our hearts. Sin, no doubt, in the believer's heart no longer has dominion. It's checked, it's controlled, it's mortified, it's crucified by the power of grace. And yet, The very struggles which go on in the heart of a believer, the fight that he finds it needful to fight daily, the contest between the flesh and the spirit, all of that testify to the same great truth. All of that show the enormous power and vitality 
of sin. Mighty indeed must that foe be who, even when crucified, is still alive. So that's what, Lord willing, we'll talk about next week. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. We've been made a new creation in Christ, united with him in his death, raised with him in his resurrection. How then do we learn to stand firm and stop taking orders from the old slave master that we've been set free from? We'll talk about that next week. Holy Father, thank you for the call to righteousness, for the call, not only the call to faith, but the call to obedience and thank you for the ways that those go together thank you that you have not called us to exercise a supreme effort of the will or self-discipline in order to pursue righteousness but that you have equipped us that you've made us new creation that you've opened the gate of the prison cell door and invited us to walk out thank you that we are no longer under the dominion of sin thank you that sin is is losing its 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 savor Thank you that our appetites have changed and that we love righteousness. And yet we recognize that sin, the temptation to sin lingers. And so I pray that you would help us to fight the fight of faith and to walk the path of faithfulness and obedience. In your name we pray. Amen.